We've been studying the Psalms for the summer, and so this morning we are coming to the 16th Psalm. Um, this morning, what I want you to be able to walk away with is this simple idea that in the middle of crisis, God will be enough. In the middle of crisis, God will be enough. There's no such thing as a crisis-free life. From the time you were a baby, the tears started to fall because you were experiencing challenges. And we might look at those moments right now and say, well, that wasn't much. But back then, it certainly was. There could be lots of comments about babies and crises, but we'll just move on from there. We all have varying experiences in our lives. We have a range of crises that we experience from abandonment for some as a child, parents leaving, and that was a crisis that has continued with you throughout life and it's affected the way that you think and wonder about yourself. For others, it's abandonment from children or spouses. Others, it's health challenges outside of your control. You can't bring it to an end. It's greater than you. Lost jobs, the list could keep going on and on. You get to those moments and the challenge, the crisis is greater than you. If it wasn't so great, you would you would manipulate it, you would fix it, you would eliminate it, and you'd move on with life. And that's what we try to do with crises when they come. But we find ourselves in situations, in challenges at times, where the crisis is bigger than us. And what David is doing in this psalm is he's coming to God and he's saying, God, in the midst of this, because it's not going away, I am going to trust that you are enough for me in the middle of this. So it's my hope that we will have faith after we study this psalm today that God will be enough for me. Three points to the outline. I'll give them to you now and I'll give them to you as we go through. Number one is God is my protector. Number two, God is my portion. And number three, God is my provider. So what is it that makes God enough for me? Number one, he is my protector. So verse one, David starts out with a petition. And we don't know the background to this petition, but he just says in verse one, the very first verses of our ESV translation, he just says, preserve me, O God, preserve me. As though something is ready to pour him out, perhaps unto death. Several situations he was facing where Saul tried to pin him to the wall with a spear, chased him out into the wilderness, hold him up in some caves. His son Absalom, while David was sitting on the throne, starts a coup and runs David out of town. There were enemies like the Philistines in his life that pressed in on him. These things were bigger than him. One of these situations could have been when David wrote these words, God, this is bigger than me. I'm asking you because I can't do this for myself. Please preserve me. And in the middle of this crisis, he begins to really show us what I heard on the radio this last week. I don't know if you were listening. One of the days where Alistair Begg started off his sermon from Ephesians 3, and he said, for the, for the child of God, we actually live in two realms. 
We live in the world, but that's not our limitation. As a child of God, we also live in God. So here's what David says. Preserve me because I'm in the world over here. But notice the second realm that he runs to right away. Preserve me, second half, for in you... That's where I find myself. I find myself in the middle of this crisis over here, but I also find myself somewhere else. In you, what am I going to do? I'm going to take refuge. So maybe just illustratively, you can think of it this way. World War I, soldiers are out on these gruesome battlefields. And yet, within the battlefield, they had a chance at refuge with the trenches that were there. Great big battle up over top that's raging. And yet at the same time while the battle, the umbrella of the battle is going on back and forth over here. They are in the middle of this trench in their bunker finding hopefully some refuge there. For us it's not a hope. Here's the world. Here's the crisis. Here's the challenge. It's big. It's above us. We can't stop it. But what David says is, while I'm in the world right here, I also find myself having hope because in you, in you, God, I can find refuge. I can take refuge in you. We live in the world where the crises of life are occurring, but as the people of God, we are living in the refuge of God as our protection in the middle of all of life. That's what our faith leads us to. So wherever you are with whatever crisis you've experienced, maybe today, it's kind of a gravy day. You know it comes next week. It'll be you next, maybe tomorrow, maybe this afternoon. It's coming. God is our refuge. Psalm 5 verse 11 says this, but let all who take refuge, who are in the battle, who need help, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. So you think about somebody who's on the field and the bombs are dropping. And then somebody comes over here and says, come on, follow me, follow me. I've got a place where you can find refuge down here. He gets down to the the bunker, the safe bunker. And what does he do? Wow, thank you. I'm rejoicing. Boom. I can hear it up there. Boom. I can feel it. But this is us and God. By faith, we know that God is with us in the middle of every crisis. He is our refuge. Two characteristics of David's relationship that probably bolsters his faith here. Number one is this, that God is his authority while he sees him as his refuge. God is his authority. So verses one and two, preserve me, O God. Notice the names of God here as I read through this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, and if you've got your ESV, maybe NASB, NIV, they've got Lord in all caps there. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, capital L, now lowercase letters. I have no good apart from you. So three names for God are purposefully given. So we draw, our attention is supposed to be on him. And in verse one, we're seeing God and the Hebrew behind that is just simply L, which means the the mighty one, the strong one, the muscle that shows up to the crisis, if you will. And then at the beginning of verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, all caps there, that's Yahweh, Jehovah, the one who enters into meaningful relationship with his people. He loves his people. He's in relationship with them. So here's the muscle. Here's the one who relates. But notice what he says here at the end of verse 2. You are my Lord, and this is Adonai. 
This is the master or ruler of my life, the muscle, the one who loves me, and now I see him as the authority in my life. And you might think, how is he going to follow up his recognition of who God is? What would be his next statement? He says, as God is the authority of my life, notice what he says, I have no good apart from you. I have no good on my own up top in the war. And, and as I thought about that this week, David recognizes all of who God is in his life, and especially that last address, Adonai, the master or ruler, I've got no good apart from your authority in my life. Now think about this from like a big picture of the Bible. We have no good out from underneath the authority of God in our lives. You can think about this as children. When they say to mom and dad, I don't want you anymore. Go on. You want to try life on your own? You want to try life out from underneath the umbrella of my authority? Do they stand a chance? Not at all. You think about the parable of the prodigal son. If you don't know the story, Jesus told this story in Luke chapter 15 where an adult son comes to his father and he has all kinds of selfishness built up into his heart and he says to his father, Dad, will you just give me the inheritance now so I can go on with life? He takes the inheritance. The Bible says he goes to a faraway city and lives recklessly there. In other words, he comes out from underneath his father's authority. And when he comes out from underneath his father's authority, he lives a reckless, sinful life. And what happens? He squanders it all, spirals down, and finds himself living among pigs. He hits rock bottom. And the story wraps up with, at that moment, when he's in the pig pen, God is at work and we're never too far away from God. There's a conviction that takes place. And he says, I've got to come back to the Lord. And he comes back home and his father is waiting for him. They're welcoming him home. They throw a feast and they have a relationship. But when he comes out from underneath his dad's authority, there's no good there. Out from underneath God's authority, David has no good and the lesson here is that a heart of surrender to the Lord's authority in one's life is good for us. That's, that's part of God being enough for us in the middle of crisis. So we find ourselves in the middle of crisis, and there are times where God is saying, still follow me, still follow me, still follow me. And in our minds, we have to say, okay, it is right for me to follow the Lord. It is right for me to persevere in faith because apart from him, I'm a mess. There's a second characteristic of his relationship with the Lord, and this is now a reciprocation. You see David's loyalty back to the Lord. In verse 3, he says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. These are God's people who have the same heart as David because they have God as their highest good. And because of that, David can delight in those who have the same desires, who have God at the center of their lives. Um, it's one of the wonderful things of a church body, that when we come together and we express our worship to the Lord, we know that we're among those who have God as the desire of their heart. 
You see his loyalty in verse 4. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So in other words, David knows that for those who walk away from the Lord, for those, for those who live a lifestyle outside of God's authority, there's only sorrow that is waiting for them as they chase the idols of their own lives. Is David thinking, God? I've put the currency in, I'm loyal to you, and now since I've been loyal to me, you owe me. I've done all the good things, I've loved your people, I've kept myself from my idolatry, therefore, come on, give me the payback, make it the good life for me. It's not that. What David is saying here in these verses is that loyalty to the Lord, loyalty is the substance of relationships. And this kind of loyal relationship results in an assurance that God is with me. God is my refuge. So in verses 1 through 4, we're seeing who God is. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. There's assurance there. God is my protector. In verses 5 through 8, David moves from the prayer for God's protection to more of a praise, if you will, his perspective changes. And now in verses five through eight, we see that God is my portion. God is my portion. And in verse five, it's kind of like a high point as we continue marching up this hill. It's a peak that we're experiencing here in verse five. Verse five, David says this, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Um, notice the deliberate focus of his desires. Of, of all of the things that could be in front of him, he is saying, God, you, you are my portion. You are what I want. This language for um, chosen portion actually goes back to a theme about land and the goodness and enjoyment of land. Um, some of you have passion to enjoy land, and I kind, of, I kind of understand that. I've been watching some series about life in Alaska, and it just kind of resonates with me where these people go out onto the frontier of Alaska, they get their lot of land, and they start clearing it, and they start making it work for them, they enjoy the resources, they do all kinds of hunting and fishing, they build their own shelters there, and they look at it as, this is the land that I have, and I want to make it work for me. And, and in the end, it's usually a happy story, and they're enjoying that. When it comes to David talking about, you are my portion, he's referencing the thought that took place when the tribes were given their portions of the land. When Israel went into the land that God had given to them, and even before that, God had said, here are the tribes, and each of these tribes are going to receive a portion. That's going to be your goodness to farm and to enjoy and to take care of. And yet there was one tribe that wouldn't receive land. It was the tribe of Levi. And here's what the text says in Numbers 18, verse 20. The Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land Neither shall you have any portion among them. And you're thinking, oh man, this guy gets gypped. He gets no land at all, nothing to cultivate it. But here's how God follows up. He says, 
I am your portion. I am your inheritance among the people of Israel. And so for the tribe of Levi, the idea was they had something better than land. They had something better than physical resources. They had God there. And so what David is saying here is when it comes to the lot in life, if the buffet were out in front of me of a million things right now, of all the things that I could choose in life, in the middle of this crisis, would I want deliverance? Would I want security? Would I want comfort? Would I just want people back? All of those things would be good. And perhaps in other Psalms, he might say, like, God, please give me this. But here you see the depths of his heart. And he says, no matter what, if I'm in the middle of this trial, God, of all the million things that I could choose, I'm going to choose you. You are my portion. We're really like pulling the curtain back on David's heart to see what is the deep desire that is there. Um, a lot of you know that last month when we were gone, I had the blessing of having kidney stones. And, um, and I wouldn't wish those on anybody at all. And uh, I had never experienced this stuff. And that pain just, boom, hits you hard. And there's no immediate relief once it gets to a certain stage. Like, it hits a threshold, um, and it's just present there. Like, before I went to the hospital, maybe I could maneuver around. I'd take a walk, and, and I didn't know it was kidney stones at the time, and it would just kind of alleviate itself and go away. I got to the hospital, the ER, and this, this guy nurse who's it's always kind of funny when you get a guy nurse. You never know if they're going to be like, tough it up, dude, or if they're going to be gentle with you. So I, I come into the ER, and um, I'm sitting there, and he, he, he gives me the dude talk. He's like, oh, dude, I know you're hurting there. Come on back. So he puts me in the wheelchair. We go back, and I get stretched out on that bed. Um, the doc comes in, evaluates things. Yep. You've got kidney stones. The guy nurse comes back and he's like, I'm going to give you something good. You're going to feel good. <laughs> and he puts, a, he puts a drip in my arm with the bag up there. And I thought, oh, that, that's, not, that's not that great. He's like, oh, that's just your hydrator right there. That, I'm just pumping you fluids. He takes this other needle out. And it had about this much juice in it. And he pops that right into my vein here. And I'm not kidding you, about five seconds after it went in, life was good. <laughs> I mean, oh. I, I just kind of like threw my legs back over the bed. I'm like, that is powerful stuff. And then after two hours, it wore off. And I'm, hey, guy, can you come back? And he hit, he hit me up two more times with whatever that was. And I asked him, what did people do 100 years ago? without this? And the basic answer was, you crawled up under a tree, and you just gutted it out, or you were gone. The thought occurred to me, we live in a time of blessing. That was my crisis in that moment. I couldn't control it, and it was physical in nature. Um, the thought occurred to me, if 
I had to choose one or the other. God as my portion or physical relief as my portion. You know, when you hit crises that are that big, that you can't, you can't even budge, they won't inch at all. The question comes, what do I want most right now? And physical pain is the kind of pain that typically comes and goes. Some of you have chronic physical pain. It's emotional, relational pain that can be like the biggest burden for people to carry. It can be the crisis that doesn't go away. It can be so heavy in your life, and there's a thought that you have to come to. And the thought is here in Psalm 16. God, I know the crisis is here, but Lord, you are my portion. I'm going to choose you. This is the life of God's people, and we're called to this in faith. And for the Christian who's here today, who has a relationship with God, you know the tension that's here. A non-believer might say, I don't get what you're saying because I would, choose, I would choose the relational fix any day. I would choose the physical relief any day. The Christian who has walked with God and knows the relationship, the abiding relationship with God, you know this tension and you know by faith that in that moment you can say, God, you are greater to me than a fix to my crisis. And that's what David is saying. I'm in the middle of it. I can't get out from it. But here's what I know. God, you are greater to me than a fix right now. I need you more than even a fix. You are my chosen portion. I think of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, and here it is, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And the idea here is that all things in life, Paul could say, belong on this shelf, but when it comes to my chosen portion, it's going to be God. And young people, you are going to face a lot of things in life, and there might be some ways in, in order for you to fix the crisis or move through the crisis, but there might be something in your life that's a permanent crisis that goes to the end. Not too long ago, Chris and I were sitting at the table with a couple, and the person on the other side of the table uh, teared up after recounting the trials that they've been going through. And teared up and said, I have to accept that this is the lane that's going to go with me for the rest of my life. You can't escape all of the crises in life. But as a believer, God, preserve me. In you, I take refuge. You are my chosen portion above all things. And that's who God is for us. He's our provider. David continues on and says, you are my cup, you hold my lot. In verse 6, he says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And David is not talking about physical lot lines. He's talking about what God has given to him in life. 
And he's saying, God, you've given me so much in life. The lines of my life have fallen in pleasant places. The boundaries of life have been given to me by you. I'm accepting your plan. And he has God in his life. In verse 7, David can say in the middle of the crisis, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Another characteristic about God being a provider is that he is our wisdom. You are never without wisdom as a Christian. In verse 8, he moves on and speaks of security. He says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And this is kind of an interesting picture here when he starts talking about God being at his right hand. I think the idea here is that David is a warrior and when he goes off to battle, in his left hand, he's carrying a shield. His right hand, he has a sword. And the idea is that the shield protects basically the left side of the body. The right side can be very vulnerable, especially if you're crossing the body with your sword. This whole portion is an open flank here. And yet what he says is, on this right side of my body, I have God who is present. And again, he's using these just as pictorial terms or references for us so that we know God is present with him in the middle of the crisis. God is his security. As Christians, we know that God is present with us. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3 says this, The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and he will guard you against the evil one. Whatever crisis, whatever trial you're going through right now, nothing will get into your life without God's permission, without God's knowledge. You are completely protected because of God's presence in your life. Now, third, we see that God is my provider. God is my provider. I think I've mentioned provider in the second point a few times, but you know what I meant. God is my portion there. Verses 9 through 11, God is my provider. So verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. There's that theme of security again. But notice what God is providing here in verse 9. There's an overflow of gladness. There's an overflow of joy here. And in verse 11, he continues that theme. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. There's the theme of joy again. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So life is going to be filled with challenges. Life is going to be filled with adversities, hurts, sadnesses. But David is saying that because the Lord is with him and because of who the Lord is, he won't be shaken. The crisis in your life is not going to be able to stand over your grave someday and say, I had the last word in this person's life. Because David in verses 9 through 11 starts talking about joy. And what is the nature of this joy? Is it temporary joy? What kind of joy is this in verse 11? It's a joy and pleasure that has an eternal nature to it. And so we might see the crisis lead us to the grave. That health challenge might lead us to the grave. All of us will be led to the grave unless Jesus comes back. 
So there will be a challenge that presses us down into the grave. And yet, what this is saying is that that Christ is not going to be able to stand over you and say, yeah, I got you. Here's the truth of verses 9 through 11. Something is shining through here. There's a mystery that's going on in verses 9 through 11 because now we're saying, no, God has made it possible for me to have pleasures forevermore. So how does that happen? Well, we skip verse 10, right? If you're looking for a theology of resurrection in the Old Testament, here it is in verse 10. Verse 10 says this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is the grave. It's the place of the dead. And the next phrase reads, Nor will you let your Holy One seek corruption. Some of your versions say the pit which has the idea of a dungeon. And so when, when the person is thrown down into the dungeon, there they are in the dirty, dank dungeon on the floor, no food to eat. There they are, they're going to die. Their body's going to decay. And David says here in verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to the grave, nor are you going to let me just corrupt away, decay away, end of life, stories finished. David expresses a confidence knowing that he would die, but that God had more for him. And for the Christian, we know that this theme of life more just blossoms in the New Testament. Peter took this passage from Psalm 10 and made it absolutely pop with color for us. So what we need to do is go to Acts chapter 2 to see this pop for us because Psalm 10 is not the end of the Bible. In Acts 2, Peter takes Psalm 10 and gives it more meaning. Folks, this is why it's important to read the whole Bible together. Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. Just a few weeks earlier, Jesus had been put to death and resurrected And now he's already ascended into heaven. A group of people have surrounded Peter and he takes an opportunity to share the gospel. And in the middle of this sermon that he preaches, we start in verse 23. Here's where Peter brings in Psalm 16. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yet God raised him up. Think of resurrection here. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. The crisis did not have authority over Jesus because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. That's Psalm 16. And he keeps going with it. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. This is the Greek now translation of Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. For you made known to me the paths of life. And you will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter is taking Psalm 16 from David's mouth 
And he starts sprinkling, this is about Jesus. This is about Jesus. This is about Jesus. Now notice what he says. Continue on in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died, and this was a thousand years previous to Christ, that he both died and was buried. And Peter says, his tomb is with us to this day. So we know his body's in there. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So what Peter is saying is that when David was back here writing Psalm 16, it was as though he could see through a foggy glass and see a Messiah who would not be abandoned to Hades, not be abandoned to the grave. There would be power over death. We live on this side of the foggy glass, so we see Christ back here and we can see it clearly. And you say, okay, I see Psalm 16, which is helpful for me to see who God is, but now we're talking about that it's fulfilled in Christ, that Christ is resurrected and alive. The crisis of the cross did not have the last word on him. The resurrection took place. And so how the rest of the New Testament goes then is that the victory that Christ had at the cross and through the resurrection becomes the victory that he shares with his people. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says the significance of the resurrection is that it was just a first fruit. And everyone who follows Christ is like the fruit that comes in in the rest of the season. Let me read it for you from another author. Because Jesus' resurrection from the dead was the first fruit of all who sleep in death, it guaranteed that David and all of the saints would be raised from the dead. Therefore, God has not abandoned David or any of the saints to the grave, but will raise him triumphantly. The point is, therefore, that God will not abandon his faithful servants to the grave. So here we are, folks. We see back in Psalm 16 that God is enough. He is my chosen portion in the middle of the trial. And unless Jesus comes back, a crisis is going to drive us to the grave, death. You might go to the grave with all kinds of challenges. You might go to the grave with all kinds of hurts, adversities in life. But knowing this, that that adversity, that challenge does not have the final word on your joy forever and ever. Through Christ, Psalm 1611 comes true. That we have pleasures forevermore because Christ defeated death. And we take In his victory, we enjoy in his victory. So we face trials and challenges in life, and they will go with us. They can be legal battles that seem overwhelming. They can be relational hurts that seem never-ending. They can be deep struggles with health that are going to attach themselves to your body, and you have to carry them for life. Some of you have words that were spoken to you that are like a crisis. They've broken your heart into a million pieces. 
And it feels as though the trial has the defining word on your life. It feels as though it has the last word because it's part of your life. But the point of Psalm 16 is that the crisis is possible for you to go through because you have something, you have someone greater than the crisis that cannot be taken from you. You have God and he has given you salvation. And on the other side of death, God is going to raise you up to life everlasting in his presence where there will be pleasures forevermore. And so we can cry out Psalm 16, God preserve me, keep me safe. We can say, you are my Lord, I will follow you all the way to death. We can say, you are my chosen portion because I have no good apart from you. We can say, you are my protector. You are guarding me at my right hand throughout life. We can be thankful that all the trials of life will not be the final word of defeat, but that through Christ, God will triumphantly bring us through all sin, through all death, through all trials, and he will grant his children pleasures forevermore. Let's pray.